This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Get Your Guide. No matter where you are going on your next travels, Get Your Guide offers great ways to connect with your destination and make memories with locally vetted, expertly curated experiences. Things just as examples. You could go whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon. You could take a tour of Pike Place Market in Seattle with a chef. There's a London Royal Parks and Palaces tour. All kinds of options wherever you are going. So discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at getyourguide.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. Tax season is approaching, bringing potential extra cash your way. Rather than spending it all on an expensive deal filled with yada yada from your current wireless plan, consider switching to Metro by T-Mobile for no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and not a yada yada. Not putting up with yada yada means not falling for all those extra headaches. If you don't take yada yada in life, don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and not a yada Yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we're going to talk about someone who listeners in Canada may be familiar with and folks in other parts of the world might not be. It is Emily Pauline Johnson, also known as Degayon Wage, who made a career writing poetry and prose and performing it on stage in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Pauline's mother was British and her father was Mohawk, and Degayon Wage was her great grandfather's name. I have seen it translated as double wampum, double life, and two streams. So, regardless of the exact specifics there. The idea of two or doubling is in all of them. Pauline adopted Degayon Wage as a stage name and a pen name, and she performed and published a lot of her work under both of these names, as in it would say E. Pauline Johnson Degayon Wage. Most people that I have seen writing and speaking about her today, including other members of the Mohawk Nation, refer to her as Pauline Johnson. So I've also heard three pretty different pronunciations of Degayonwake, if you're like, that's not quite how I've heard it before. I heard it a number of slightly different ways. You just got to pick one at the end of the day. Emily Pauline Johnson was born on March 10th, 1861, at her family's home on the Six Nations Reserve. This is outside the city of Brantford in what's now the province of Ontario. 
Her parents were George Henry Martin Johnson and Emily Susanna Howells, and she was the youngest of their four children. Emily had been born in Bristol, England, and her family had emigrated to the United States when she was still a child. She met George after her sister Eliza got married to the Reverend Alan Elliott, who was an Anglican missionary. Alan worked on the Six Nations Reserve, and George was his interpreter and lived in the parsonage with him. Emily and George met when Emily was visiting her sister, and they fell in love after George contracted typhoid. Eliza had asked Emily to come and help take care of him. When George and Emily got married, it was over both their families' objections and in spite of controversy in both indigenous and European communities. Marriages between white men and indigenous women had been relatively common during the early decades of European colonization of Canada, when most colonists were men. But marriages between white women and indigenous men had never been viewed in quite the same way. In the European ideal, white women were examples of purity, while indigenous men were thought of as uncivilized or savage. So, people objected to the idea of a supposedly pure woman marrying a supposedly uncivilized man. As more Europeans had emigrated to Canada, interracial marriages had also become less and less socially acceptable overall. One of Emily's brothers-in-law, the Reverend Robert Rogers, not only refused to officiate her marriage to George, but also spent years refusing to acknowledge that the marriage existed at all. Robert told Emily that any children she might ever have with George would never be allowed to associate with his children with her sister Mary. Beyond that, the Mohawk Nation has a matrilineal kinship system, and George's mother was a clan mother within the Wolf Clan. George had also followed his maternal uncle as a hereditary chief with his mother's backing. Marrying a white woman rather than a Mohawk woman meant that roles that had been passed down through their family for generations could not be passed along to his children, something that his mother was deeply upset about. Many indigenous people were also angry that under provincial law, Emily would automatically be considered indigenous after marrying an indigenous man, regardless of what the tribe's own laws said about her citizenship. But George and Emily loved each other, and they got married in spite of all this in 1853. As a wedding gift, George started building a spacious home on the Grand River known as Chiefswood. It was finished about three years later. He built this home with identical entrances on two sides, one of them facing the road and the other facing the river, so that indigenous visitors who often came by canoe and European visitors who usually came by road both felt as though they were being greeted at the front of the house. I love that detail. I do too. This kind of duality was threaded all through Pauline's life. Her father spoke multiple languages, including the Mohawk language and other languages from the Six Nations of the Haudenosaunee, as well as English, French, and German. He worked as an interpreter and a cultural liaison, and in addition to being a hereditary chief, he also held various positions for the provincial government. Most of the time, he went by George, spoke English, and wore European-style clothes. But when it came to formal or ceremonial tribal events, he wore Mohawk-style clothing and used a Mohawk name. He had a few other names over the course of his life, the most well-known being Onwenonshoshone, 
Emily was dedicated to the idea that Pauline and her siblings should love and honor their Mohawk heritage and ancestry. But she was also worried that white society might judge them for it. So in addition to raising them with a very clear sense that they were Mohawk, Emily also tried to mold them all into a very picture-perfect example of a Victorian British family. She had a lot of rules about etiquette and dress and behavior that they were all expected to follow very scrupulously. In terms of their education, George had attended the Mohawk Institute Residential School in Brantford, which was established in 1831 as one of the first residential schools for Indigenous children in Canada, and he sent his sons there as well. The Mohawk Institute eventually became a template for a formalized government-backed network of schools meant to separate Indigenous children from their families, cultures, languages, and identities, and to force them to assimilate with white society. In 1920, the Canadian government made attendance at the schools mandatory for Indigenous children, and thousands of children died in them while they were in operation. Today, we understand that this was a tool of cultural genocide, and these schools existed alongside laws and government policies that were explicitly designed to destroy Indigenous cultures and traditions and to force Indigenous people to assimilate with white society. That part hadn't happened yet when George started at the Mohawk Institute, which was shortly after it opened, or when he sent his children there. But the roots of this whole system and the focus on assimilation really stretched all the way back to the first Christian missionary efforts in Canada. And conditions at the Mohawk Institute were cruel from the beginning. George and Emily sent their oldest son, Henry Beverly, known as Beverly or Bev, in part to act as an example for other Mohawk families who were reluctant to send their children to the school. But Bev was miserable and homesick the whole time. They sent their son Alan as well, but after he ran away to his grandparents' house, they did not make him go back. Pauline's sister Evelyn, known as Eva, went to Helmuth Ladies College in London, Ontario instead. Pauline, though, was educated primarily at home. She had been seriously ill several times as a child, and her mother was acutely worried about her health. Emily Johnson had watched three of her sister Eliza's children die during an outbreak of scarlet fever, and then Eliza herself had died of tuberculosis, and all of that naturally heightened Emily's fears about Pauline's health. So Pauline had governesses and tutors and access to her mother's very large library of English literature. She learned Mohawk history and folklore from her Mohawk family members, especially her grandfather, John Johnson, who was known as Smoke Johnson. This is apparently because his Mohawk name was translated into English along the lines of disappearing of the Indian summer mist. Like Pauline's father, her grandfather was prominent within the Mohawk. He had been named Pine Tree Chief, which was a non-hereditary position, after the War of 1812. The Johnson family's position in both Mohawk and European communities meant that throughout Pauline's childhood, they hosted all kinds of dignitaries and other important people at Chiefswood. This included Arthur, Duke of Connacht, third son of Queen Victoria, who was named Chief of the Six Nations in 1869. Alexander Graham Bell and his mother visited Chiefswood as well, and at one point the family saw a trial of Bell's telephone, with George sending his message across the line in Mohawk. 
But there were also times when George's life was threatened as he tried to mediate between white and Mohawk societies and protect the people of the Six Nations Reserve. When Pauline was four, George tried to put a stop to illegal alcohol trafficking into the reserve, and he was attacked and badly beaten by two non-Indigenous bootleggers. This is one of at least three times that he was attacked and seriously hurt as he fought back against things like illegal liquor and illegal bootlegging on First Nations land. Eventually, Pauline's parents thought she was well enough to attend a reserve day school. But by that point, she had trouble fitting in. She had developed a very particular demeanor under her mother's many rules, and she was so passionately interested in British literature and poetry that she had a really hard time connecting with her classmates. After this, though, from the ages of 14 to 16, Pauline went to the Brantford Collegiate Institute, which was far enough away from Chiefswood that she had to stay with friends in town during the week, and then she would go back home on weekends. It really seems like away from the rest of the family, she started to grow into a more personable, friendly, fun-loving young woman. She loved making friends and canoeing and writing, especially writing poetry. Her writing later made her famous, which we will get to after a sponsor break. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids, but I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. After Emily Pauline Johnson returned home from Brantford Collegiate Institute in 1887, the assumption was that she would soon be getting married. And she did reportedly have a lot of suitors and several marriage proposals, although we really don't know a lot of the details. Her sister Eva destroyed most of Pauline's personal papers after her death. Eva was a poet and a writer as well, but she thought their private lives should remain private, and she similarly destroyed a lot of her own correspondence, too. Pauline did not get married, though. She kept living at Chiefswood with her parents and sister, spending her time writing, camping, and canoeing, which was something she dearly loved. But then in 1884, her father died. As we had said earlier, he had been attacked several times, including once in 1873 when he was shot and left for dead. He had been permanently disabled and disfigured, and he dealt with chronic pain and recurring skin infections. Although he had been living with all of this for years, his death at the age of 67 was unexpected. Pauline's brothers had already moved away, and they had established careers elsewhere. They tried to send money home to their mother and sisters. Eva also got a job working as a clerk for the local Indian superintendent, but they really just couldn't make ends meet without George's income. Aside from that, Chiefswood was situated on about 200 acres of land, and there was a farm and orchards, and the three women just could not maintain it on their own. In 1885, they leased out Chiefswood, and they rented a small house in Brantford, and Pauline started trying to publish her work to help support them. This was, obviously, a difficult time for all three of them. In addition to their grief over George's death, Pauline's grandfather, Smoke Johnson, died in 1886. Their home at Chiefswood had been large and comfortable, and they had been well off, and now they were in a much smaller space on a much tighter budget. Pauline also lost most of her connections to the Six Nations Reserve after her grandfather's death, so a lot of her writing about the Mohawk or indigenous people more broadly was rooted more in her childhood memories than on current realities. And Pauline's writing really wasn't adding very much to their income. She published poems and magazines and newspapers, and she did some work for formal occasions, including the dedication of a statue of Mohawk leader Joseph Brandt, who had fought for the British during the American Revolution. This was in October of 1886, and afterwards, Pauline's poem was covered in the Toronto Globe. 
But while she was making some headway in Canadian newspapers and magazines, she really struggled to publish in the U.S., especially in major magazines that might have paid her more. She wrote patriotic poems about Canada, poems about the beauty of the Canadian landscape, poems inspired by her Mohawk heritage or Indigenous history. And it just was not resonating with editors in the U.S. She eventually became so discouraged that she thought about giving up. But she had sent some of her writing to American poet John Greenleaf Whittier, whose work similarly included pastoral poems about rural New England. His letter back to her was so gracious and encouraging that it really lifted her spirits. But Pauline's big break didn't come from Whittier. It came from a reading she gave at the Young Men's Liberal Club of Toronto in 1892, when she was 31. An old school friend, Frank Yeh, had invited her to appear at this, and she chose to recite a poem called A Cry from an Indian Wife, which is written from the point of view of a Métis woman during the Northwest Rebellion of 1885. This poem illustrates what Pauline was doing with a lot of her work that directly related to Indigenous people. It was written to be accessible to a white audience, but it also did not shy away from subjects that would make that same audience uncomfortable. This included leaning on the kind of linguistic tropes that white audiences would expect from a First Nations poet. The poem's first line is, quote, My forest brave, my redskin love, farewell. But later lines are quite pointed, writing, quote, They but forget we Indians owned the land, from ocean unto ocean that they stand, upon a soil that centuries agone was our sole kingdom and our right alone. They never think how they would feel today if some great nation came from far away, wresting their country from their hapless braves, giving what they gave us but wars and graves. From there, the speaker in this poem imagines a white woman praying for the safety of her own husband, heading off to fight in this same conflict, before ending, quote, She never thinks of my wild, aching breast, nor prays for your dark face and eagle crest, Endangered by a thousand rifle balls, my heart the target if my warrior falls. Oh, coward self, I hesitate no more. Go forth and win the glories of the war. Go forth, nor bend to greed of white man's hands. By right, by birth, we Indians own these lands. Though starved, crushed, plundered, lies our nation low. Perhaps the white man's God has willed it so. Pauline treated this event as more of a performance than a straight reading, and the reception was extremely positive. A newspaper write-up about it said in part, quote, Miss E. Pauline Johnson may be said to have been the pleasantest contribution of the evening. It was like the voice of the nations that once possessed this country, who have wasted away before our civilization, speaking through this cultured, gifted, soft-faced descendant. Pauline developed the performance style that she became famous for from there. She billed herself as E. Pauline Johnson Degayonwage and spent the first half of the performance in Indigenous dress, reading work that focused on Mohawk and other Indigenous themes. And then she would change into a Victorian gown and read other work, like pastoral poems about the beauty of Canada or love poems, patriotic poems, things like that. All of this was carefully tailored to appeal to white audiences. Her outfit for the first half of the performance wasn't any particular indigenous regalia. It was a costume inspired by an illustration of Minnehaha from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's Song of Hiawatha. 
Some of this costume choice was because at this point, many Mohawk women were wearing European-style clothing. But those who weren't often wore tunics, leggings, and blankets, which Pauline didn't think would come together in an appealing or flattering stage ensemble. She shopped around, trying to find something authentic that would give her the look that she wanted on stage, before finally buying a dress from Hudson's Bay Company in Winnipeg and significantly modifying it with buckskin fringe, fur pelts, and beads. She added to this costume over the years, also wearing a bear claw necklace and carrying a hunting knife that had belonged to her father. In addition to poetry, Pauline also wrote essays and stories, and as all of this was happening, she won a short story contest for A Red Girl's Reasoning, and that became her first published piece of fiction. This is about a woman named Christine, whose father was English and whose mother was indigenous. Christine and her new husband, Charlie, who is white, are at a social gathering when a conversation reveals that Christine's parents were married through indigenous customs and not through a Christian marriage ceremony or at least a magistrate. Charlie and a lot of the other people around them are appalled at what to them is a scandalous revelation. When asked why her parents didn't get married by a priest or a missionary once there was one in the area where they were living, Christine answers, quote, Do you suppose that my mother would be married according to your white rights after she had been five years a wife and I had been born in the meantime? No, a thousand times I say no. When the priest came with his notions of Christianizing and talked to them of remarriage by the church, my mother arose and said, never, never, I have never had but this one husband. He has had none but me for wife, and to have you remarry us would be to say as much to the whole world as that we had never been married before. You go away. I do not ask that your people be remarried. Talk not so to me. I am married, and you or the church cannot do or undo it. Pauline's career really took off in late 1892. Between October of that year and May of 1893, she did 125 performances in 50 cities and towns, which is just a colossal number. I can barely imagine how exhausting that must have been. We will get to how her career grew from there after another quick sponsor break. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. 
I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Pauline Johnson understood that by incorporating an Indian princess costume and drawing from the stilted language and idioms that white people associated with native speech, she was kind of pandering to white people's sensibilities and potentially reinforcing some stereotypes. At one point, she replied to somebody who had written to her about this and said, quote, more than all things, I hate and despise brain debasement, literary pot boiling, and yet I have done, will do these things, though I sneer at my own littleness in so doing. The reason of my actions in this matter? Well, the reason is that the public will not listen to lyrics, will not appreciate real poetry will not, in fact, have me as an entertainer if I give them nothing but rhythm, cadence, beauty, thought. 
But she also created a persona and a literary voice that felt comfortable and safe to white audiences. And she used that as an opportunity to push back against injustice and racism or to undermine those same stereotypes. She also commented directly on specific issues through her work. This included, as one example, the residential schools that her father and brothers had gone to, which at this point had come under federal control. The poem, Her Sister's Son, was part of her regular performance repertoire, but was never published in full. It read in part, quote, For they killed the best that was in me when they said I must not return to my father's lodge, to my mother's arms, when my heart would burn and burn. For when dead is a daughter's womanhood, there is nothing left that is grand and good. Because of her more pastoral work on the beauty of the rural Canadian landscape and her more patriotic poems about Canada, Pauline Johnson is sometimes included among a group of Canadian poets known as the Confederation Poets. These are writers that were born sometime in the 1860s and were the first poets to really come to national prominence after the Confederation of Canada in 1867. And they're really considered to have formed the foundations of the Canadian literary tradition. By 1894, Pauline was touring all over Canada, as well as into parts of the U.S., and she traveled to London that year as well. Apart from the extreme physical and emotional demands of this kind of schedule, she faced personal difficulties during this time. Her brother Beverly died of apparent heart failure while she was away on tour, and her sister Evelyn was increasingly frustrated that Pauline was never home to help with their responsibilities there. Evelyn and their mother were both deeply disappointed whenever Pauline would come back to Brantford only to turn around and head out on tour again. It didn't help that even though she and her touring partner, Owen Smiley, were charging venues $75 a night to perform, or $50 if the crowd was really small, she never seemed to have much money to send back home. Apart from the cost of travel and keeping herself fed and housed, she was generous with her money, especially if she thought somebody really needed it. And she just wasn't particularly good at budgeting. I've read a lot of sources that just describe her as bad with money. (laughs) It just, it flowed. Uh, Pauline's first book, The White Wampum, was published in London in 1895. That book simply said Degahyon Wage on the cover, with the title page including the name E. Pauline Johnson and Degahyon Wage underneath. And sometime in 1898, Pauline became engaged to Charles Robert Lumley Drayton. Later that same year, Pauline's mother died. Pauline had gotten word that Emily was seriously ill while she was on tour, and she canceled the rest of her planned appearances so she could go back home. Her fiancé's mother went with her, and Emily Johnson died less than an hour after Pauline arrived. This was the start of a particularly difficult stretch for Pauline. Shortly after Emily's death, Pauline developed a throat infection and then rheumatic fever, which would affect her health for the rest of her life. Then, Charles's mother died. Pauline's already tense relationship with her sister became even rockier as they butted heads over how best to divide their mother's possessions and Pauline's refusal to move home. Eva couldn't afford the house they'd been living in by herself, and she had to move. For a period after this, Pauline and Eva were estranged. Then in 1900, Charles called off their engagement, and Pauline faced a series of serious illnesses, 
At one point, she was so sick that doctors thought she might not survive. And over the course of her illness, she dealt with skin infections and also the loss of all of her hair. She finally recovered, though. Pauline also found a new touring partner, Walter McRae, in 1901, but her family loudly disapproved of this choice. They thought McRae was vulgar and that she would damage her reputation by being associated with him. For Pauline's part, she usually toured with a white man as her partner, both for her own safety and to help with logistics. Walter handled a lot of the management end of things, and he was consistently loyal to her. Johnson's second book, Canadian Born, was published in Toronto in 1903, but it wasn't reviewed as well as White Wampum had been. It included a lot of her earlier poems that she'd already published, and critics just didn't find it as fresh or original as they had found her first book. Around this time, she decided to focus on publishing more prose with the hope that she could earn more money than she was by publishing poetry. Her performances were still the real moneymaker for her, but without more income from publishing, it was still not enough. She took another trip to London in 1906, something that she had been working toward for years, but could only do once she had paid off various debts from earlier tours. And while she was there, she met a delegation of indigenous leaders from the Pacific Northwest who hoped to meet with King Edward VII. One of them was Squamish Chief Sa'apalak, also known as Joseph Capilano. We've talked so many times on the show about treaties between indigenous nations and Britain or the United States that were inherently exploitive of the indigenous nations being treated with or which Britain or the U.S. just ignored the terms of, or both. In what's now British Columbia, Canada, settlers had moved into indigenous lands without even the pretense of a treaty. This delegation to Edward VII had been formalized after the provincial government had unilaterally banned hunting and fishing outside of formalized hunting seasons. They did this without regard to the fact that indigenous peoples lived by hunting and fishing year-round. Indigenous peoples' advocacy for themselves on this issue had been ignored. Although this delegation did eventually meet with the king, at this point they were still waiting and they seemed homesick and dispirited. So Pauline and Walter brought them a gift of tobacco, and Pauline greeted them in the Pacific Northwest trading language known as Chinook jargon, which she knew a little of. She described their faces as lighting up when they heard words from home, and she and Sa'apalak became friends. While the king did eventually meet with the delegation, as we said, he did not take any action on their requests. Pauline and Walter returned to North America in 1907, and shortly after they arrived in Nova Scotia, the hotel where they were staying caught fire. This was at Christmas time, and the hotel was nearly empty, so nobody else was on the floor where their rooms were when Pauline smelled smoke. By the time the fire department arrived, they thought it was too dangerous for anybody to go to the upper floor, so Pauline went herself, saving both hers and Walter's belongings. This was extraordinarily dangerous, but Pauline knew that if she did not go get her things, she was going to lose everything, and this included her father's hunting knife and other family heirlooms that had become part of her touring costume. By this point, Pauline had succeeded in her effort to publish more prose, and her work was regularly appearing in Mother's Magazine and Boy's World. She made another trip to London in the summer of 1907, although it's not clear how she spent her time there. Unlike with all her touring, this time she went by herself. 
After she got back, she embarked on a Chautauqua tour. The Chautauqua movement was a movement for adult education that flourished in the U.S. in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And while Chautauqua lectures were usually well attended, the schedule on the circuit was grueling. After having taken a brief vacation in Vancouver, Johnson moved there permanently in 1909. And this was the first time she had had a permanent home since leaving for her first tour in 1892. She made a lot of friends. In particular, there was a woman named Jean Johnson. The two of them really loved to spend time in the outdoors, canoeing, and just generally hanging out and being a source of mutual support for each other. Although Pauline's touring partners were men, when it came to friendship and emotional connection, most of the people closest to her were women. At one point, she said in a letter, quote, women are fonder of me than men are. I have had none fail me, and I hope I have failed none. It is a keen pleasure for me to meet a congenial woman, one that I feel will understand me and will in turn let me peep into her own life, having confidence in me that this is one of the dearest things between friends, strangers, acquaintances, or kindred. In 1910, Pauline Johnson was diagnosed with breast cancer. She had noticed a lump in one of her breasts a couple of years before, but she hadn't sought treatment Apart from the stigma associated with cancer in general and breast cancer specifically, there just weren't that many options for treatment at the time. By the time this was diagnosed, her only option was a mastectomy. But by the time that diagnosis happened, her cancer had already metastasized. Pauline had always tried to do things her own way, and she refused to ask for help. In 1911, some of her friends organized the Pauline Johnson Trust to try to raise money for her medical care and living expenses. Canada's system of universal health care was still decades away at this point. In 1911, her friends helped her publish Legends of Vancouver, which was a collection of Squamish legends and stories told to her by Sa'apaluk, who had died on March 10, 1910. This was not the title Pauline wanted for this book. These stories were not about Vancouver at all, but her friends believed that the book would sell better with that name. And they may have been right. The first printing of 1,000 copies sold out within a week. Other editions followed, with more than 20,000 copies sold over the course of about a year. Pauline was really sick by this point, and she finished Legends of Vancouver by dictating her work to her editor, Another book titled Flint and Feather followed in 1912, and its publication seems to have been particularly frustrating and chaotic. Pauline might not have been well enough to proof the manuscript herself, like the documentation on this is a little fuzzy, and afterwards she was dismayed at a number of misprints and omitted verses there. When Eva heard how sick her sister was, she went to Vancouver. She and Pauline had not seen each other in years at that point, and although their relationship had improved since its very lowest point, there was still a lot of tension between them. They disagreed over everything, from money to where Pauline should be buried. They also just had totally incompatible approaches to Pauline's illness. Pauline refused to acknowledge or talk about it, while Eva wanted her to stop seemingly ignoring the fact that she was dying. Pauline Johnson died on March 7, 1913. Even though she'd asked for nobody to see her body after her death, her friend Charles Morega, who was a sculptor, made a death mask of her. Her body was cremated, and at her request, her ashes were buried at Stanley Park in Vancouver. 
Although some of the land that became the park had been used as a cemetery before that, burials were not being done there anymore. She was the only person to be legally buried there after the park was established in 1886. There was really a massive public outpouring for her funeral, with people just lining the streets of Vancouver to see her funeral procession, but the burial at the park was private. In her will, Pauline left her performance costume and many of her other belongings to the Museum of Vancouver. Some of her papers and clippings from her tours are collected at McMaster University. Pauline's book Moccasin Maker was published posthumously in 1913. Some of her other works were collected and republished after her death as well. In 1922, the Women's Canadian Club erected a monument at her burial site in the park. There had been plans for a much bigger and more elaborate monument, but it was decided to be too expensive in light of World War I. When Pauline's sister Evelyn died in 1937, she left Chiefswood to the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory, Chiefswood was recognized as a historic site in 1953, and it opened in a, as a museum in 1963. It is still a museum. It is currently closed for renovations. Pauline Johnson was tremendously famous during her life, and she's probably the most widely read Indigenous poet in Canada. In 1945, she was named a National Historic Person. In 2016, Johnson was one of the women considered to be shown on a Canadian banknote, which ultimately went to recent podcast subject Viola Desmond. Pauline Johnson was one of the most prominent writers and performers in North America around the turn of the 20th century, and some aspects of her legacy are complicated. Because she was trying to earn a living by writing, she published a lot of work, and that means some of it varies in terms of its quality, Audience response to her work has also really varied a lot in the century plus since her death, as literary and cultural tastes have changed. But writers continue to cite her as an influence in their own work today, especially but not exclusively Indigenous women writers. Uh, I also thought we would end on one of her nature poems, since most of the poems we have read from before have been uh, more about, uh, specifically about Indigenous culture or history, and that's one of several sort of topics that she wrote about. So this is a nature poem called The Lost Lagoon, which was one of her later poems written about a body of water in Stanley Park. It is dusk on the lost lagoon, and we two dreaming the dusk away beneath the drift of a twilight gray, beneath the drowse of an ending day and the curve of a golden moon. It is dark on the lost lagoon, and gone are the depths of haunting blue, the grouping gulls, the old canoe, the singing firs, and the dusk, and you, and gone is the golden moon. O lure of the lost lagoon, I dream tonight that my paddle blurs the purple shade where the seaweed stirs. I hear the call of the singing firs in the hush of the golden moon. That is Pauline Johnson. Uh, Do you also have listener mail for us? I do. This is from Cassie. (laughs) and uh, This delighted me. Cassie's email is titled Penicillin in Peoria. And Cassie wrote, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I've listened to your entire backlog of episodes and constantly recommend your podcast to others. I'm a closet history nerd, and your show makes my heart infinitely happy. I'm currently in the middle of the penicillin episode. I had to pause it and write to you for the first time. Immediately, I finally had a reason to write in. 
At the beginning of the episode, you ladies chatted about how everyone knows some weird abbreviated version of how penicillin was created. I was so confused. I was like, what? No, it was in a cantaloupe. Everyone knows that. I legitimately stared at my phone in utter confusion. Then I got about halfway through the episode and it struck me, duh, I live in Peoria, Illinois. We had the cantaloupe story drilled into us from childhood because of the locale. We also know way too much about a Lincoln Al Capone theater and diapers because of this location. Anyway, I found it super interesting that I have had a much more thorough education on penicillin just because of where I live. Attached are pictures of our rescue dog, Odin, our Boston Terrier, Loki, and Nala, our gecko. Thanks for keeping my brain happy. I love your show, Cassie. Thank you so much for this email, Cassie. I am always delighted when we stumble over something that, like, people local to an area know innately, but other people (laughs) are clueless about. Uh, Also, all of these animal pictures are adorable. More geckos, please. Yeah, it's also fine to write with us if you don't have a reason. If you just want to say, look at this dog I I saw today, then that is also great. Um, (laughs) I'm so glad to know that Peoria in particular knows about the cantaloupe that was part of penicillin. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. And we're also all over social media at Miss in History, which is where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and wherever else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. From football playoffs to basketball madness, 
TCL Roku TVs are the best way to stream your favorite live sports. With all the biggest sports channels, a sports zone with all available games in one place, and apps like iHeartRadio with sports podcasts such as The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Cheering on your favorite team has never been easier. A big screen TCL Roku TV offers premium picture and sound quality, so you'll feel like you're right in the action. Find the perfect TCL Roku TV for you today at Amazon.com.